in their book, How Now Shall We Live? Chuck Colson and Nancy Piercy include a story from William Steig's children's book, picture book, and it's called Yellow and Pink. There are two wooden figures wake up to find themselves lying on an old newspaper in the hot sun. One figure is painted yellow, the other pink. Suddenly, yellow sits up and asks, do you know what we're doing here? And so begins a debate over the origin of their existence. Pink surveys their well-formed features, and he concludes, someone must have made us. Yellow disagrees. I say we're an accident. And he outlines a hypothetical scenario of how it might have happened. A branch might have broken off from a tree, fallen on a sharp rock, splitting one end of the branch into two legs. And then the wind might have sent it tumbling down the hill until it was chipped and shaped. Perhaps a flash of lightning struck in such a way as to splinter the wood into arms and fingers. Eyes might have been formed by woodpeckers boring into the wood. And with enough time, anything could happen, says Yellow. Why not us? The two figures argue back and forth over this for a while. In the end, the discussion is cut off by the appearance of a man coming out of a nearby house. He strolls over to the two little figures. He picks them up, checks their paint, and says, Ah, nice and dry. And then tucks them under his arm and heads back into the house. Peering out from under the man's arm, Yellow whispers in Pink's ear, Who is this guy? Think on that. (laughs) I was struck in the reading of this story by, I think, the analogy that is there for us in our study of Colossians chapter 1. We've been looking at lofty, grand statements that, that Paul is making about God and specifically about the Lord Jesus in a rescue attempt in which God loved us too much to leave us laying out on the hot sun on an old piece of newspaper, a miserable place to be. And in fact, Paul actually refers to it as the dominion of darkness. Far worse implications than an old piece of newspaper in the hot sun. It's a place of spiritual blindness. It's a place of bondage that holds the human heart captive with no hope of living out the relationship for which God has created us to live in. But Paul writes that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he's brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. And it's in that place, in that Son, that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And remember, he wrote to the Ephesians, that it's because of God's great love for us. Ephesians chapter 2, the fact that God is rich in mercy, that He rescued us. So in this series, we've been looking at the declarations that Paul makes in Colossians about Jesus, our rescuer. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 22 has been our text, and we we have been looking at these lofty statements. Now, quick question, remember why... Why are we looking at these lofty statements? Why did we speculate, or I guess I should say I'm speculating, as to why Paul lays it out the way that he does? 
He describes the rescue, that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, whom there is redemption, forgiveness, and sins. And then it fairly well explodes off the page these grand and lofty declarations about Jesus Christ. Why is that? For the very same reason, say again, Greg, so we know how to engage others. And it could be that the Colossians were sitting in their congregation much the same way we are. Ho-hum! Thank you. That's exactly what it was. It was a wow. And that's what we're trying to dial up here, my brothers and sisters, is the wow factor at what God has done. We've got to battle this human default mechanism that resides in our hearts, even in the hearts of the redeemed, to make little over what God has done. Amen, somebody? Whoa, is it... I mean, do I stink? I brushed my teeth? Wow. Ho-hum, God has rescued me. Yes, yes, I was a little lost. I was a little confused, but I had potential, and God saw that, and so he threw me a lifeline. (laughs) That's how we live our lives in relationship to what Paul is saying. Paul told the Ephesians that people apart from Christ are by nature objects of wrath. They are not interested in God. They are not searching for God. God didn't rescue us. Remember, he didn't rescue us because we held promise. Because there was potential there. He rescued us because he is great in love and mercy. And he wanted to display us as his trophies of grace for all of eternity to redeem us for his glory. But until we really come face to face with the reality of who we are apart from Christ, we're not going to go, wow! Because we're still going to think somewhere deep down in the corner of our hearts, we weren't all that bad. Yes, we were. It's not my idea. It's Scripture. Human goodness compared to the standard of God's holiness, Paul says, objects of wrath. But God is rich in mercy and love. And he rescued us. Now we're warming to the idea here. Okay. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, this is the gospel. I love this. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe. You're more loved than you ever dared hope. That is priceless. God rescued us. And he brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So for the redeemed, that is their new home. They are now living in a kingdom where Jesus is king. They are living in a place, a place of their hearts, a place where Jesus rules that impacts the lives that they live. You know, we've spoken about the now and the not yet element of the kingdom of God. We're waiting for that reality of the kingdom called Heaven, that is yet to come. But because of the presence of the Spirit of God that is given to each one who is redeemed, we can now live in and we can experience the kingdom of God on earth now in terms of His rule, His control, and how it affects 
our daily lives. And in doing that, we live out the kingdom of God and its values on a daily basis for all people to see. And we do that with gratitude and excitement if we understand what God has rescued us from. How many times have we prayed over the years, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are we praying for when we pray those words? Are we praying for a release from this crummy place in which we live? Is it sort of an escapist mentality that Jesus is teaching his disciples? Oh, pray for heaven, boys, because this is the pits. No. No, come to earth. Come to earth and begin with my life. Begin with my heart. Begin with your rule, your values, your reign being birthed in my heart so that my life is one that is lived in gratitude and joyful obedience to the reign of Jesus Christ and the values of the kingdom of God so that others might see that, so that others might be drawn to that. You're looking pretty excited again, I might add. Okay. Some of you know the name Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was minister for 30 years, Westminster Chapel in London. He was, he was a, a reformer, really, of, of British evangelical theology. He is what you would classify as someone who was, was in the conservative camp, Britain's conservative camp. However, near the end of his life, and some say that this was kind of at the pinnacle of his ministry, he came to his congregation one morning and he had some very telling questions that he asked them. He said, I want, I want to talk to you today about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, you may call it what you want, but I want to know, have you experienced the fullness of the Spirit? That's a good question for us as well. Jones went on to say, I know all of you listening to me come as I do from a reformed background, but it's not good enough. I know that all of you would want to say in answer to my question, well, we got it all at conversion. There's no need for any more experience. Well, said Martin Lloyd-Jones, I have only one other question to ask you. If you got it all at conversion, where in God's name is it? Good question. Fair question. If we understand how hopeless we were before God rescued us because he's rich in mercy, because he's great in love, if we understand that, if we understand that, there will be some enthusiasm for the one who saved us the wow factor will be dialed up in our lives. We will hear these declarations that Paul has been making about Jesus and we will respond, I think, with more and more, wow, this is amazing. And I believe that's why Paul is making so much of Jesus in our text. Carrying on so because he wants the Colossian believers. He wants the Applewood believers. He wants anybody who reads this stuff to understand just how wonderful and how amazing and how necessary Jesus is to our salvation. So this morning we're going to look at, at one more declaration about Jesus. 
It's really, it's kind of a summary declaration, sort of a summary exaltation, if you will, and it, and it leads us, I think, wonderfully into our, our communion celebration this morning. So stand with me, if you would, and let's read again our text that we have been reading for this series from Colossians 1. Here we go. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your behavior. But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. My brothers and sisters, this is great news. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Okay. Go ahead and be seated. Now we're going to put verse 19 and 20 back up because that's going to be our our focus this morning. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, him being Jesus Christ. So I want you to turn to someone nearby and ask them, what on earth does Paul mean by those words, all his fullness? See what your neighbor says. Okay, you ready? Ready to tell us what your neighbor said? What on earth is Paul getting at? He was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. Want to take a stab? 
Okay. Nothing missing? Completeness. Okay, good. Donna, were you going to? Okay. <laughs> he was indeed. In fact, he said, this is my son in whom I am very pleased. <laughs> Lee? Okay, good. Excellent. Excellent. Someone else? Greg? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And 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 we are we're confronted here with that inevitable clash between humanity and divinity in the person of Jesus. You know, we we understand humanity, that's us. We understand limitation that comes. Um, and, and yet, familiarity with the greatness, the awesomeness, the mystery of divinity, that, that escapes us. And how those two come together in this person we call Jesus, that just hurts our heads to, to try to figure out how that plays out. And yet... As we've, we've said before, in, in different places, different times, the Scripture affirms the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. And, and, and it, it makes for some fascinating reading, as I've told you before, to read some of the, the early church, the creedal statements that, that the early church leaders labored over. I mean, they sweat theological bullets over this stuff, trying to, trying to clearly lay out the, the divinity and, and the humanity. Jesus as fully human. Jesus as fully God. Nothing missing on, on either side. And there were two fundamental truths that drove this passion. There was, there was such a desire to clarify what Orthodox Christianity believed about Jesus. And, and what was behind that is because they knew, they understood clearly that only God can save. And we've said that before. If Jesus was not really God, if Jesus was not fully God, if Jesus was not completely God, then he doesn't save anyone. So there was the passion of the knowledge that, that only God can save. And then there was, there was a second passion, only that which is and the word that, that was sometimes used amongst the early fathers was, was assumed. Only that which is assumed can be healed. The word assumed, it's a hard one to, to, to wrestle with, but it's the idea of to become or to, to be the genuine article. So that what's, what's behind that is, is that Jesus didn't just appear to be human. He was human. Because if Jesus was not really human, then how could he become the sacrifice for humanity? That's why the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament did not work. As perfect and spotless as a goat might be or as a, as a lamb might be, it did not take care of the sins of the people. It took care of, of sheep sins. But it didn't take care of humanity's sins. To take care of the sins of people, a perfect human had to be sacrificed. And there were none of those until Jesus came along. 
perfect and fully human, standing in the place of imperfect humanity, and yet fully God because only God can save. And so there is that mind-stretching mystery of the incarnation. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Paul knew this. That's why it is the fullness of God, not just a little divinity, all of divinity. It's kind of a kind of a bookend statement, if you will. Paul started the narrative. You remember this text, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. And now he completes this section with Jesus having the fullness of God. And I want you to remember that. This morning, we come to celebrate communion together. You need to remember that it was God in all of his fullness that rescued you from the dominion of darkness, that saved you, that brought you into the kingdom of the Son he loves. One commentator says it this way, the Father was pleased that Jesus should come with the whole treasure of divine grace. I love that. However big that is, that's what Jesus came with. The whole treasure of divine grace. And, and note those words, the Father was pleased. The Father was pleased. He didn't do it grudgingly. He didn't sit there and look down at a sinful world and say, oh, for Pete's sake, somebody's got to take care of this mess. I guess it's going to have to be me. The, the language of pleasure. The Father was pleased. The Father was pleased to create this rescue operation. Not grudgingly. He held nothing back. The Father was pleased to have all of his fullness, all the treasure of divine grace dwell in Jesus the man. So, let's add then to this idea, that next phrase, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. For what reason? To reconcile to himself all things. To reconcile to himself all things. When we think of salvation, there are a lot of, lot of words in Scripture that, that we are, are familiar with. You know, we, we think of words like justification. We think of words like redemption and forgiveness and adoption. All of those are, are sort of dimensions, if you will, of, of the same truth. Uh, it's, it's not like one versus the other. They're, they're all descriptions of what God has done. Scripture also uses this word reconciliation. And it's a word that means to change or to exchange. And it's most often used in Scripture to describe relationships. Paul uses it consistently to describe a relationship that is characterized by animosity that needs to be reconciled. And notice notice that in these words to the Colossians, he ties it to the statement by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so God was pleased to have the fullness of Jesus, 
the fullness of himself dwell in Jesus so that he could reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You hear that word peace. The implication there is that, that there, there wasn't peace. There was animosity. Now, you remember when we've looked at Ephesians 2 before, we mentioned this earlier, we're by nature objects of wrath. That is the idea of being at war with God. By our very natures, apart from Christ, we are at war with God. That doesn't mean that we just out and out verbally say that we hate God or that, that we understand that we're at war with Him. It's the idea, again, of, of ownership. It's the idea of created design. What were we created to do? We were created to live our lives for the glory of God and to experience unimaginable intimacy and delight in that relationship with the one who is his unending in his love and his capacity for grace. And so to be at war with God means that we've decided that we're going to live our lives apart from God. We may choose to live a good life. You know, It doesn't mean that you're a serial killer if you're at war with God. It can mean that you're a very nice person. You know, that you pay your taxes and you take good care of your family and you're involved in the community and you do good things for humanity. If God has no part of your life, if God is not the driving force in your life, that's what Paul has in mind when he says you're at war with God. There is animosity in that relationship. And to be at war with God, it's never a good place to be. Because it's just a war that is never won. It just isn't, not ever. And so through the death of Jesus, God has extended to us the olive branch. The olive branch of peace. If you're here this morning, if you're here this morning and you have never accepted the olive branch of peace that God offers to you through His Son, Jesus, oh, I hope you'll ask someone today before you leave. Ask me, ask someone how can I have peace with God? How can, how can that, that war be removed between God and myself? So, one last observation before we gather together at communion. Paul states that, that God's purpose in having all of his fullness dwell in Jesus was so that all things could be reconciled to himself. And he says, whether things on earth or things in heaven. It's an interesting statement. It's a statement about, ultimately about the thorough and complete nature of Christ's reconciliation. Nothing is missed. And it also has a a definite now and not yet element to it. The now has to do with those of us who are alive and breathing and our response to God's gracious offer of reconciliation. We have been reconciled. We continue to be reconciled in this process of living out our salvation in relationship to God through Jesus Christ. There's also a sense of, of reconciliation of creation that will come. You know? and, and this is one of those intriguing themes in Scripture. It is not yet, but it is coming. You know, Paul speaks of it in Romans 8. You've heard these words where he writes, all creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So that the created order is a part of the reconciling process that God is bringing to pass. That prophetic passage in Isaiah chapter 11 where 
Isaiah describes the leopard and the calf lying down together. Children putting their hands into the nest of the cobra and not being harmed. These are things on earth that will be reconciled. They will be restored, if you will, to what God originally intended. Things in heaven. Things reconciled, whether things on earth or things in heaven. What does that mean? Are there angels that need to be redeemed? There are more created life out there somewhere that needs to be redeemed? Uh, there's all kinds of possibilities. Scant little hints here and there throughout the Scripture. A lot of folks um, go down some interesting paths in this idea of reconciliation of things in heaven. I'll be honest with you. I don't really care. Because there's not enough to really know. And my suggestion to you would be this, and I, I hope, I, I didn't mean for that to sound disrespectful or don't spend your time there. But what I'm trying to say is don't spend your time there. <laughs> because what's really important is that you understand the here and the now and what God is intending through your reconciliation in your life. I can understand and I can know based on what Scripture teaches what He is doing in my life. He is reconciling me. He is reconciling my brother and my sisters. He is reconciling His people. And remember the word reconciliation always has to do with relationships. And so reconciliation starts, first of all, with the war, the animosity between God and me. It has been removed in Jesus. And then the other piece is that it has been removed between God's people. There ain't nobody that we can't get along with in the family of God because of the Spirit of Jesus who indwells us. That is what reconciliation is about. And what's going on in the heavenly realms, I don't have any idea. But I do understand enough of what's going on in the earthly realm to keep me busy all the time. And you too. Okay? So, so let's don't get, a, don't get distracted from the importance of this statement. It's a, it's a statement about the scope of Christ's reconciliation, to be sure. It's taking care of all the created order in some way, shape, or form. But it's also a statement about the sufficiency of His reconciliation. And I think that sometimes what stands in the way of the, of the reconciliation component that comes between God's people is that sense in us that we really have been forgiven. That sense in us that what is past and before Christ, well, it really is past. We sang this morning, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Amen. Hallelujah is right. You know, and if we really, really begin to understand that Christ is sufficient, that he has covered our, our sinful past, 
that he has covered those things that sometimes just the very thought of them brings shame, which, by the way, comes from the enemy and not from God. You know, if we can get a handle on that and really begin to live out the full sufficiency of what Christ has done in reconciling us, wow, the ability that we have as God's people to become reconciling agents with one another. There is nothing more that is needed. We come to the table and we are reminded in the elements, in the bread and in the cup, that it's complete. It is, it is done. It is finished. Slate is washed. We are new creatures. I love what, what John Owen, Puritan, says about this. Think on these words as we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning. <laughs> he, says, he says, this, therefore, the severest of our thoughts. This deserves and needs the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them. He says, For if our future blessedness shall consist in living where He is and beholding of His glory, what better preparation can there be for it than a constant previous earthly contemplation of that glory as revealed in the gospel? that by a view of it, we may be gradually transformed into that same glory. Brothers and sisters, as we come to the table of our Lord Jesus this morning, come, come remembering that God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Him. All of His fullness so that he might reconcile all things to himself. Things in heaven, things on earth, past, present, and future. Complete and thorough reconciliation. Nothing left uncovered. And in him, we find forgiveness of sins. Praise be to God. Praise be to God for what he has done. If you have never taken communion with the Applewood family, it's easy and it's delightful. We are celebrating the words of Jesus, the night that he celebrated and, and, and ate that one last meal with his, his followers. He took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus said this, this represents my body which was given for you. Do this often. Remember me. Don't forget me. Don't forget what I've done. Let a passion for what God has done for you through Jesus the Savior well up in you. Remember it when you eat the bread. Remember it when you wake up in the morning. Remember it when you go through the day. Remember it when you go to bed at night. Remember Jesus. We come this morning 
to remember Jesus, not with ho-hum, but with awe, with wow, with amazement.